This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, here today with IHS Markets Chief Oil Analyst of Canadian Markets, Kevin Byrne, who is joining us from Calgary today. How are you, Kevin? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And you were just back, you were telling me, from an in-person coffee uh, in downtown Calgary, which is a, a rarer thing these days than, than perhaps we once took granted for. It is a rare occurrence, and it is hard to negotiate for logistical time now. <laughs> yeah, well, I welcome you back to the digital world as we sit here and look at each other through uh, Microsoft Teams application as we've become so accustomed to doing. So we, we are here today to talk uh, about oil sands, and, and uh, oil sands is we, we've done, you know, on Energy Sense, a lot of these um, topics related to, you know, some of the more, I'll say, growth-oriented headlines around some of the clean tech initiatives, uh, around some of the um, oil price topics, gas price topics, but not really anything diving into oil sands, which left me kind of scratching my head on, you know, what's the current state of play in oil sands, which for many years was a, a super hot topic and is now, shall we say, less hot? Or how should we look at it today? Well, yeah, oil sands is probably one of the most talked about resources and, and maybe not the best understood resource at the same time. You know, it grew, you know, really started and came out of the heyday when the world thought it was running out of oil. Mm-hmm. And we saw a boom in Western Canada as every major on the planet plowed into the oil sands, into the upcycle. So they, they're buying in as, you know, inflationary pressures were taking off in the basin as a whole. You know, and certainly... You know, the fallout of the 2014-15 you know, price collapse that reset, you know, basically upstream investment globally, the oil sands took a big hit there. And we saw basically a lot of these people that bought in in the up cycle selling in the bottom of the cycle and the Canadian companies gaining market share, feeling they had a competitive advantage. And this was part of a trend globally, I would say, where the upstream producers really collapsed onto the assets they felt they had a competitive advantage in. And from that, we've found, you know, the industry has become much more consolidated. Mm-hmm. We've got the industry today producing nearly 3 million barrels per day on an average. And it's largely held amongst four to five companies. So highly consolidated source of supply at this point. And are all those, would you view all of those as specialists, oil sands specialists? Um, or do we still have oil sands as part of perhaps a larger portfolio? I'd say it's well. It's largely held by Canadian majors. The only exception, really, being you know Imperial Imperial, which is you know, majority owned by Exxon, mm-hmm. um, and I consider them all specialists uh, in the oil sands. And, and there's two, you know, there's two extractive technologies, and there's off they're often confused with one another. The oil sands is far from homogeneous. Um, you know, there's the large uh, integrated and unintegrated mines that exist in the oil sands, and those are the most of the photos that people see. Large truck and shovel operations, uh, very much open pit mining, and those are large facility producing, you know, hundreds of thousand barrel per day kind of operations. 
Whereas, you know, the, actually the majority of oil sands production, so those mines are about, you know, I want to say million to 1.3 million, depending if you're talking about the unintegrated or the integrated mines. So the integrated mm-hmm. mines have processing on site. So they have some downstream refining processing on site and they take that barrel to a light crude. There are newer, what we call unintegrated mines that produce a heavy style crude oil. They blend it with uh, lighter condensates to meet pipeline specifications and, and they send that to market. Those would be the mining sector. The majority of production actually comes from the thermal oil sands or, you know, just over half, I'd say. Thermal oil sands, that's more akin to surface operations with wells. Um, there is thermal heat used in the in, injected in the reservoir to help the mobilization of the bitumen, uh, but they have smaller footprints. Um, you know, if you go out there, it's mostly pad kind of drilling, very similar to other North American operations with a centralized processing facility that separates that water that they're injecting for recycle. Uh, and reheat back into the reservoirs. And, and so that thermal is about what, two, two thirds or thereabout of, of current production. Is that increasing relative to um, the, 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 was it in situ? Yeah. So yeah, it's just over, if you do a total number game, it's just over half, it's like 55%. Okay. Uh, if you, you know, if you have, depends how you dice up the industry. Uh, the, the primary engine of growth has been uh, the thermal extraction. It, you know, the mines date back, you know, the original mines and the oil sands started in mining back mm-hmm. in 1967. So it's, it's not these, you know, obviously they mined through those original leases they had, but that segment is the oldest segment. The thermal operations really came about, uh, materially began to, to, to expand in the early 2000s with the evolution of improvements in horizontal drilling technology and the, dis- and the discovery um, and the application of steam in these horizontal well pair uh, kind of arrangements. And that was a technology that really came, came around the late 1990s, early 2000s, and that unlocked the majority of the oil sands leases and lands. I think it's not a, you know, the oil sands is massive in terms of physical space and there's reservoirs close to the surface. And when that depth is in, you know, sufficiently shallow, those support mining operations. As those reservoirs dip down into go into deeper areas, you're going to have to use something where you're not going to be removing the overburden. And the majority of it is too deep for mining, to be honest, the vast majority of it. And that was the evolution of thermal extraction. Now, thermal extraction is not new. It goes back to the 80s and they use more vertical well kind of technology. But most oil sands reservoirs are not thick, that thick. And so they thinner seams, they required some sort of horizontal ability to access them at the angles that basically you need to. Okay. And if we're at 3 million barrels today, I mean, is that, what does that look like compared to, to the past couple of years and what are we expecting over the, the, the coming years? Well, I think one of the misconceptions that, you know, in 2014 and 15, they, people thought that was kind of the end of growth in the oil sands. The lower prices is so high cost, it's not going to be able to make, make it through, right? But the reality is oil sands challenge has always been the upfront out-of-pocket expenditure to bring on mm-hmm. a project it has to be built out over three to five years, depending on the scale of what you're building. That was the hurdle. And certainly that shock in the lower prices basically caused people to defer projects and cancel projects that had that sort of lead time. Um, but even still, a lot of these projects were underway. And I, I think of the oil sands being, you know, the most unresponsive oil on the planet. These, these things proceeded mm-hmm. by and large. Certainly the ownership of them changed, but they proceeded. So back in 2015, you know, the oil sands was about 2.3, 2.4 million barrels per day in terms of output. In 2019, they were pushing about 2.9 million barrels per day. So a significant lift in output, despite the adversity we saw in the market. And there was a lot of other volatility in the Western Canadian market over that period. 
you know, there was the 1415 uh, price collapse, the global price collapse. 2016, there was the Fort McMurray wire, wildfires that caused, you know, uh, dramatic shutdowns of a number of facilities, unplanned shutdowns. 2018, there was the differential blowout in Western Canada where we saw the price of heavy oil trade $50 a barrel beneath global benchmarks because of uh, constraints on the takeaway system. 2019, we saw, you know, the beginning, um, 2019, there was a production curtailment put in place by the government of Alberta that really constrained, constrained the production potential of the oil sands to manage that export system. So we didn't have, you know, overproduction again beyond the takeaway capacity. And then 2020, we had the COVID price, you know, the COVID, you know, the global pandemic and the price shocks. There's been a lot of bumps in the road. Um, right now, we see the primary driver of growth into the early 2020s being the continued ramp up of existing installed capacity. And there's still a lot of capacity in place. To give you a flavor, by 2022, we expect annual average production to be over 3.2 million barrels per day. And it continues to kind of creep up after that. But that's really optimization of the existing system. And that takes you out to about the mid-2020s in terms of the growth profile. So you still get optimizations. And what I mean by that, there is a significant scale of operations that are installed out there. 3.2 or 3 million barrels production. There's a lot of individual facilities. And as these producers scrutinize them for low capital investment return opportunities, so ways to save operating costs, which you can use as a function of productivity, as well as your cost base. So they're trying to save the cost base, but if they can creep productivity off existing assets by debottlenecking and whatnot, they can have operating cost savings. So as they do that, we expect the system to creep. Mm-hmm. And that can be significant off a 3 million barrel system as a whole onto itself. Uh, our long-term outlook is probably the lowest it's been in a half decade for the oil stands. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, but compared to last year, you know, pre-COVID outlooks, we were somewhere between 3.8 to 3.9 million in 2030. And today we're close to about 3.6 million uh, barrels per day expectation by 2030. From around three now. Yeah. So a rise of about 600,000, give or take, the majority of that coming from leveraging existing assets. So far less incremental step out in terms of expansions. Okay. So we should really be looking at this uh, as kind of a stable source of supply as opposed to any sort of aggressive growth or aggressive decline profiles yeah i think the two things about oil sands it's it's hard for it to be aggressive growth or at least (laughs) it doesn't show up overnight because you've got lead times of two to five years depending on what you want to build so you see it coming Mm -hmm. um but once it's built it is the cost structure is competitive we we pay most of the oil sands cash cost break even so not operating cost but cash cost because they have to buy diluents they, you know, they're subject to exchange rates because they're in Canada. So some of their costs are in Canadian dollars and whatnot. But we pegged that somewhere between, I'd say, the low $30 per barrel on average on a WTI basis. And so at the prices we're seeing right now, they're doing quite well. They have very robust balance sheets rebuilding going on and pretty pretty impressive free cash flow they're throwing off as well. And you, you mentioned a second ago takeaway. Um, how should we look at takeaway capacity and takeaway uh, concerns. Obviously, Canadian pipelines to the U.S. have made headlines over the past uh, several years and months. Um, are there takeaway concerns going forward, or, or is that not yeah. quite the bottleneck that it could be? Well, in Canada, it's always good to ask if there are takeaway concerns, because it has been the story for, I'd say, almost since 2012 and 13. The Canadian production has uh, the pipeline export capacity struggled to keep up with production growth. And we've seen significant delays on almost every project that was announced. And, and the majority of projects that were announced didn't make it to completion. Right now, the Enbridge Line 3 replacement project is the closest to physical completion. 
Enbridge is single somewhere over the next, you know, 15 to 20 days, it will be online. Um, The timing couldn't be better for the industry. All our balances tended to indicate that the production in the oil sands coupled with the conventional unconventional is going to go up. And the system was running near capacity already. So in the absence of that, the potential for oversupply exists in the system. With line three there, we see it continuing to be able to clear on pipe and that'll provide price stability for the region. Uh, the next pipeline after that is the Trans Mountain expansion. It would be delivering Canadian crude to the West Coast and potential offshore export markets. It could end up in California and Asia and elsewhere. Again, we see the need for that pipeline almost as soon as, almost when it's planned in terms of the ability of Western Canada to overproduce that takeaway capacity again. With those two pipelines complete and improvements in or opt- ongoing optimizations have been announced on a number of other pipelines. We think the system could clear or continue to clear on pipe for the majority of our outlook. Though I will put a caveat on that, that assumes all existing pipelines stay into operation, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a safe bet because there's a lot of opposition moving from new projects to existing projects. It, it also assumes that those expansions and optimizations occur when they're planned. And even then, we see high levels of utilization on the system in the mid to late 2020s. And so pipelines aren't meant to run, you know, certainly pipeline owners want them to run at 100%. But from a producer's perspective, running at 100% is not necessarily optimal because it provides you little flexibility to address or move around outages as they occur or upsets as they occur. Well, and, and can, you, can you talk about the opposition uh, or, or maybe more generically just the perception um, of oil sands that, that, you know, when when there was call it, call it a lot of enthusiasm, uh, if one can say that, and sense check me if I can't say that, but a lot of enthusiasm around oil sands with, with the shortage of oil supply concerns of maybe a decade ago or longer. Now that the, the, the focus, particularly of um, those less close to energy, is much more on kind of climate driven priorities than security of oil supply uh, priorities. Um, what, what's the current kind of pulse of things right now and, and how has that changed over the, over the call it since the 90s? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and the historical context is really relevant. And, you know, I think part of the oil sands reputation came out of almost a gold rush mentality that was occurring back in the mid to late 2000s and into the early 2010s too. And you know, there was a regional concern from a number of groups about the cumulative environmental impact. That included greenhouse gas emissions, but it included impacts on the land and the air and the water and water use and all that other stuff. And I think a lot of those concerns are held by a lot of groups still, but certainly the oil sands as it's, you know, I should also add part of that was about this unbridled expectation of growth going off into the infinity. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of a lot of uh, people had put forward at the time, which pro- probably was never realistic in the sense the ability to execute that much stuff over that great a period of time was never really going to come to fruition. You know, the the industry would, you know, was already starting in 2013 to 2012, really starting to face some significant inflationary pressures on costs that was m- going to limit that growth anyways. So I think that was kind of the, the, the forerunner and it led to an opposition and that really coalesced around trying to, and it spread beyond the oil sands to the infrastructure that was being designed to, to egress the pipeline as a weak link. I think today, a lot of the attention to the oil sands, and this isn't to say that those concerns aren't, people aren't worried about those environmental concerns still, but I think certainly the greenhouse gas impact, like all upstream, has become front and center. And the sector's ability to align itself with Paris 
is cer certainly central to a lot of the conversations. That, and this isn't to diminish other environmental concerns, it's, mm -hmm. it, but certainly the attention's on the greenhouse gas emissions. And a number of studies have shown the oil sands are above the global average when you look at the greenhouse gas intensity of the sector. The globe, the, above the global average of upstream. Which is, it, which we can get into that ourselves. You know, the, there's a lot of questions about what is the global average, but the studies that have been done that try to estimate it. And I think there's a great degree of uncertainty on those studies, but the oil sands have consistently been shown to be above average. IHS market studies have shown that the oil sands ranges from, you know, basically an average to above average. But, you know, this is one thing I've always struggled with is to have an average, you have to have things that are higher and lower. And so right. something ha is going to be above average. And, and then it becomes a question of like, well, what's the trend in terms of change? What's the behavior I'm seeing? Uh, is the industry getting worse? Is it getting better? Is it not changing at all? And I think that's that's an important metric for the industry, too. And do we have visibility on that or is it too early to, to, to say whether things are getting better or um, worse? Yeah, so we we've done a number of they're actually public studies. So if anybody's curious, you can you can definitely uh, reach out and we can we can give them to people. But I think we have one of the more sophisticated greenhouse gas models when it comes to the oil sands, and we've managed to estimate the trend line by facility, and then we can talk about why it's important to do it by facility in a minute. But over the last decade or eleven years, so basically from two thousand nine to twenty twenty, we see the industry's greenhouse gas intensity dropping about twenty two percent on average. Some of it's been higher, some of it's lower again because it's based on mm -hmm. you know three million barrels of output and growing output. Um, but it, we've seen a significant reduction. That's almost 20 kilograms per barrel reduction. Now the other side of the coin is intensity is great. It's a measure of competitiveness between upstream assets. If you accept that oil is being used, you know you and I are still driving our cars. It's about the competitiveness between the barrels, and intensity is probably the fairer metric. The other way to look at this is, well, what's the absolute emission profile? Because that's contributing to climate change at the end of the day, too. And that's eventually what's going to have to roll over. And over that same period, we saw absolute emissions increase because production volume was continuing to grow. Right. So right. while they're making incremental improvements on the, the barrels they're producing, and a lot of the new production, I should say, was pulling that average down, newer production being more efficient, like the new mining that doesn't have integrated upgrading, is on the lower end of the oil sands. And so that, as that was growing, it was pulling that weighted average down. So the newer stuff is more competitive, but the absolute emissions were increasing. And this has worked its way into, you know, a lot of the divestment campaigns of the oil sand, that have been targeting the oil sands, as well as government pressure and policies to try to change that absolute trajectory. When we look forward, we see slower growth from the oil sands, and we continue to see intensity improvements. We've seen announcements that include from some of the producers sizable absolute emission reduction targets as well. Uh, Suncor Energy has um, announced a target that would see their absolute emissions be cut by a third by 2030, which is a sizable reduction. So that kind of behavior tends to paint the picture where the intensity is going to continue to fall. And with slower growth, eventually that intensity improvement will outstrip the production growth and you will begin to see absolute emission reductions. And is, does Suncor have a secret sauce, and to, to, to use that example, or, or is this if there are four or five operators, or is the band, the the, the range of emissions today are, are they all within a couple rounding errors of, of one another or, or are we seeing some that appear to have really cracked the code on emission uh reduction uh, or intensity reduction yeah there's a lot there um so we estimate in like 2019 the range of intensities found in the oil sands are anywhere from about 39 kilograms per barrel to over 140 kilograms per barrel Wow. And, and that goes to the distribution. We find this in every play, to be honest. We find there are 
always a few low volume and thus high intensity outliers in every distribution in every play and that's true in the oil sands and that that upper bound moves around based on performance we've seen it up to 190 kilos on the top end and as low as maybe 130 kilos so it moves around based on the performance and as new facilities come in or other facilities have issues because that high intensity also means high cost right mm -hmm. you're you're, you're consuming a lot of energy for not a lot of output typically and so that exists anywhere everywhere in terms of the secret sauce question Every producer has intensity targets, and some of them have uh, absolute targets. Not all of them have absolute targets, I should say. They've all committed to net zero now through this oil sands uh, uh, industry alliance, but they have all not articulated the same degree as Suncor how they intend or what they intend to do in the same detail. They all obviously are different individuals. They all have different plans. They all have different metrics to be measured at different points in time, too. I mean, some of the targets are 2023, some of them are 2030. And so they're all in different places, I think, of analyzing, scrutinizing their assets to put forward a strategy. But this Pathways initiative that they've announced, you know, does talk heavily about you know, deployment of small modular nuclear reactor. You know, the, the thermal operations ultimately need steam. And frankly, combustion natural gas is a really efficient way to generate steam. Well, another way to do it is nuclear power. Um, they also talk a lot about the advancement and deployment of large scale carbon capture and storage, including the development of a trunk line. Um, to sequester opportunities as well. So we're starting to see some pictures being painted about how they plan to pull those levers. I think the challenge with both of these things is today we're sitting, you know, in September of 2021. And if you look at CCS, for example, mm -hmm. you're looking at, you know, light speed for CCS would be six, seven years. And so you can get very sizable reductions from carbon capture and storage and very material reductions and absolute emission reductions, what we're talking about, but there is a significant lead time to them to get them in place to start changing the curve on absolute emissions in a much more accelerated pace. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means you know time is tight given the time. Uh, and I think that's true of CCS globally. You, you mentioned nuclear uh, in my face. You know, you, you may have seen the surprise in my face, but but adding nuclear to oil sands is taking two headline names or two headline pieces of technology that are troubling for some individuals to digest and putting them into one bucket is is that if one starts to solve the problems uh, or the challenges of uh, emissions within oil sands with nuclear technology does that invite more opposition i mean from a political standpoint and from a timing perspective um, can one yeah, I don't know faster that. on nuclear than ccs yeah, I, I don't know about, you know, additional social pressure from nuclear. I, I, I kind, I tend to take the view, and this isn't about oil sense in general, when we think about the decarbonization challenge and what's required, you're really going to need all the tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. You know, there are other considerations, there are other environmental impacts that are important when we think about like, you know, you could build something greenfield, great. But there, that means you're going to incur other environmental impacts in terms of land use and, and water use and those sorts of things. I, and I, I picked on CCS and nuclear, but there are other tools in the toolbox. They, you know, they're increasingly looking at the deployment of solvents and uh, I call them steam displacement technologies. They've found that the reservoirs actually retain temperature a lot better than they thought when they got into this game a long time ago. And, but they need the, the steam isn't just used for thermal transfer. It's used to apply pressure as well and maintain the pressure in the re reservoir. So the idea is, can I replace that with something else? I don't need the energy, so I don't need the steam. I need something else to be going into the reservoir. So we're seeing them inject solvents into the reservoir, 
seeing them inject natural gas, basically non-condensable gases to maintain that. And that can have a pretty dramatic impact on your emission intensity as, as a whole as well. And it, it potentially can improve productivity when it comes to solvents because solvents have the added benefit of mobilizing more, mobilizing the lighter ends that are trapped in the reservoir. And who's driving the, the innovation? Is it these four or five operators themselves or is it coming from oil field services or a mix of both? I would say a mix of both, but the industry's had, uh, it must be almost a decade, the COSIA, the Canadian Oil Sands Industry Alliance was established a long time ago. And with the intention, it's it's very much what o, like OGCI became, um, the intention of sharing IP around environmental impacts to accelerate improvements, both, and, and they have a bunch of different areas. It's not just about greenhouse gas emissions, it's about land, air, water impacts, and sharing that IP to improve their overall envir- environmental per- performance. That's the industry consortium to share that information to try to accelerate that. It's kind of hard to say they're driving it. They're certainly very influential in it, but each company is also doing their own thing, deploying their own technology. Everybody has their own brand of a lot of these different technologies, and some they're trying different things, which is the value of, I think, the information sharing because they can share them. But like if we went and talked about solvents, I could list you probably eight or nine, I probably can't list them all, solvent technologies that have their own unique brand that are slightly different variations. I don't think there is going to be a silver bullet, like there's going to be this brand, it's the best. A lot of it's going to be reservoir specific to what you have, mm-hmm. what your land looks like, and finding something that works for you, both from a, a you know a physical, how does it interact with the reservoir, but also an economic aspect. You know, can I physically get what I need, you know, in terms of the type of solvents I want? What's the availability of it? What's the cost of it? Can I get it to my facility? How do I get it there? All those questions are going to be part of analyzing the solution it'll for, for reducing continue to reduce their emissions and a lot of this that you know goes hand in hand with cost too right so reducing your steam requirement per barrel means i don't need to burn as much natural gas today as i did yesterday which has obvious cost of savings on a per unit basis when we're thinking about the cost of some of this does it does addressing the emissions is that going to materially impact the break-even cost or the operation cost for these operators or are we at a point that it's not you know if it's i think you mentioned 30 dollars a barrel does it move to 31 or does it move to 60. yeah it's going to be a technology specific question but a lot of the producers are talking about technologies that can materially reduce, reduce their extraction cost and their emissions uh, CNRL has a technology they call, in, it's a mining technology, it's a, about extracting or beginning the processing of the barrel right in the mine face. So it's mine, I can't remember the title, mine pit face extraction, something very obvious like that. Yeah. Uh, and it basically shortens the mine train. So in a mine, you obviously have the trucks and the shovels, you have what they call a hydro, uh, you have a crusher, you know, sizing the ore and get rid of large objects. And then you have what they call hydro tr- transport, which is a pipeline full of water. And they agitate the the bitumen there begins the separation process. The, the the bitumen in the oil sands mines is separated by hot water, right? And the agitation effect. They you know CNRL has a technology they're testing that they they're very excited about, which would remove large chunks of that mine train. They bring that extraction to the front of the mine, right to the mine pit face, and thus save all those emissions and all those costs with those components. And every component obviously has you know, replacement and maintenance, a lot of stuff. So you can, by shortening it, they're, they're saying they can get significant cost savings and significant emission savings of their mines, which are obviously in the world we're in are both advantages to support the longevity of this resource. So in spite of all of that, that we, we, we're, we can be relatively confident within that three, 3.6 million barrels a day that 
that the break-even economics or the operational economics don't change it to the point to put more downward pressure on output. I, I don't see them going up in terms of cost structure. I see the potential for them to fall as they optimize and bring in new technologies. They're focused on both levers right now. And and like most upstream EMPs in North America, very much focused on returning value to shareholders as well. So I think that's the interesting bit when you look at the oil sands is, you know, the, the dream of the oil sands was always to build something. And then you have this kind of free cash flow engine on right. the other side. And basically from only until a couple of years ago, a lot of these companies were still having significant capital expenditures to finish these projects, right? You would you build a project as soon as you got any money. And that was the tight oil story too, right? It was like, as soon as I have a dollar, I'll spend it on the next well. And the oil sense is very much the same, but it really started to fall off beginning in 2015 and 16. They didn't, they obviously weren't investing the same amount in CapEx, new CapEx as they were. And now where they sit today, they're, you know, they're free cash flow, less CapEx. We're we're estimating that on average for the big four oil sands, which is Sonova, Suncor, Cinerel, and Imperial, some free cash flow somewhere between four and a half billion, uh, four and a half and five billion this year, uh, if current trends hold. Some of these these actors could have free cash flow of over seven billion after you remove the capex pre-dividend. So very sizable free cash flow. The question that we're looking at when we see that is what are they going to do with it? Because right. we don't see it going back into upstream to the same degree as in the past. So is it going to be returns to shareholder? Is it going to be investments in decarbonization? Or is it going to be a little bit of both? Or maybe it's more diversification as well. And we've seen some signs of that. You know, Sonova signed a big deal uh, to, to take the power off, to secure power from a, a bit large solar project in Alberta. So we're starting to see some diversification. I, I think as we see them go through the budget cycle this year and the free cash flow potential to generate, it'll be interesting to see what they prioritize going forward. So it sounds like access to capital isn't a problem right now that that in spite of the potential environmental concerns from investors that this uh little cottage industry of oil sands producers has all the money and that, that it needs at least to sustain itself for a, a little while longer well i think they can self-finance you know to a large degree i think certainly the you know the, the divestment and generally emp lackluster interest in emp in north america mm -hmm. has put pressure on the cost of capital for these companies you know so that you know but cost of capital for what? It's not necessarily uniform. It's uniform in the sense of for upstream investment, but is it the same thing if they want to go into do into and do renewables? I, these are kind of questions I, I I simply don't have the. That's not my background to really dig into. Sure. Um, well, and, I mean, kind of curiously, I, I was looking at um, some ESG rankings or ratings, um, and, and some of these companies score quite high, um, and, and I think that was based on really good work around the G, that the governance side of things were where other areas were maybe not scored quite as highly, but at least from a single ESG number, if one were making investment or, or allocating capital on an ESG only framework, oil sands by some metrics still moves close to the top. Well, you also have to think about what, you know, the ESG metrics are measuring, it's environmental, social and governance. And I'd say one thing the oil sands are advantaged on is they've been dealing with a lot of the environmental and social issues being caught in the crosshairs for, I'd say, broader societal issues about transition. You know, they were called out as being viewed as the thin end of the wedge kind of thing. But that made them go down the route of like developing the policies, being more transparent about their operations. All those things I think a lot of other upstream companies are, are going to go through and learn themselves. And so a lot of that, you know, quantification of emissions, communication of emissions, quantification of water use, it's, and the government of Canada also developed 
greater regulatory reporting on a number of factors through the years as well to improve transparency. So that I think that shows up in the ESG scores in the sense they're very transparent about what they do and their business practices in a whole. And I think that's been in their interest because there's been a lot of confusion about what they do. This isn't to say that there aren't environmental impacts, but versus some of the stuff put out there, they have every interest to be transparent in what, what they do and they're operating. And I think that affects their ESG score. And as we see them pivot now with the net zero announcement, uh, very ambitious absolute emission reductions for some of them and intensity reductions for other, you know, they're attempting to do what the investors are asking, which is align themselves very much for transition. And so we're looking forward. Where, where do we see things more from kind of a an oil sands, uh, almost kind of branded perspective that do, do we see these companies continuing to, to focus on oil sands? Do, do we see, you know, if there is a level of support behind that, do we see that continuing to, to, to be stable or stabilize or grow? Well, we certainly see, and we've been saying this for a long time, a significant deceleration in the growth in the oil sands. Um, we, we see no greenfield projects. Um, we still see a few brownfields, but they're largely continuations of delayed or partially completed projects. And so that, that step out story for the oil sands is marked or significantly lower uh, than it has been in the past. And, and you know, people can risk that further, but the, the, the idea that oil sands growth is going to cease, cease is not going to happen anytime soon. There's just mm-hmm. installed capacity they're going to run up. And they have every reason to run it up because it drops operating costs. And in many cases, the, you know, if we talk about emissions, the emissions they're going to generate, they're going to generate most of those anyways. It's about pushing units through and using that energy and heat um, on more units. And so a lot of that is in place. When you think about the oil sands, they face the same kind of levers every upstream company faces, right? They have to, you know, they have to look at their assets and try to fix it and decarbonize it. And they're doing that. They've, they've invested in doing it. They have to look at, you know, shifting, maybe you know, maybe the other question you're asking is, would they shift their portfolios around, maybe less oil sands? Some of these companies are invested elsewhere, Imperial, Synovus, CRL have other assets. Suncor is much more consolidated on the oil sands, but they have offshore assets and other plays elsewhere in the world. So they, there's things they can do there. But I see them being, you know, very core oil sands focused still because it's such a significant portion of their portfolio. Or do they look at diversifying away from oil and gas as a whole as well. And we're seeing a little bit of that as well. We're seeing acquisition of PPAs from solar plants, investment in biofuel, bio, biofuels and biorefineries from some of these actors as well. You know, as much as we talk about them being oil sense companies, they're much more complicated than that. Sonovas mm-hmm. has significant downstream processing capacity. Suncor has downstream processing and they're in biofuels and a number, of, and they have all the retail chains. So they have electric charging stations now. Uh, CNRL is in natural is a big natural gas producer. They're big in unconventionals. They're not just in the oil sands. So they're much more complicated companies in the oil sands. It's just the oil sands kind of dominates the conversation about uh, about most of these companies because of the nature of the oil sands itself. It is is a uh, you know still remains a kind of a you know a, gr- a grabber of attention. Are the any of these portfolios? heavily wooded um, or, or all of these portfolios heavily wooded in the sense that, that one could look at um, undeveloped oil sands acreage as a nature-based carbon sequestration in, in terms of kind of revenue business or revenue generation business? Um, I think that's hard. Uh, you know, you're kind of touching outside my area, but most of the oil sands occurs in the Canadian boreal forest, northern boreal forest. And, uh, you know, that most of the oil sands leases remain untouched. Certainly they drilled uh, test wells in a lot of the areas, and you could reforest those. But we're talking about a huge area that's still forested for the most part. 
certainly the mines you could reclaim them. Uh, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to go further because there's a lot of complexity in the northern boreal <laughs> forest in terms of the quality of the forest itself. There's significant muskeg uh, as well that has a sequestration value to it. Digging it up obviously has negative consequences. So planting in it, yeah, I think you're best asked, best question best asked of a, um, another person, land use expert. Okay. All right. Well, we're about out of time anyway. So, so, so I mean, I, I guess just to kind of wrap up here, it sounds like the oil sands get, continues to kind of churn along and, and we'll, we'll see modest growth that, that may, maybe the headlines are, have moved elsewhere. Um, but, but there is, a um, again, maybe a little cottage industry of four or five producers that did keep making oil. And, and, and we can expect that um, with perhaps the emissions intensity to decline across, across the board. Is that a fair summary? I think that's fair. The industry gained considerable scale. There's a significant amount of capacity that's installed in place. The Certainly the pressure to decarbonize on the oil sands and reduce production growth has spread beyond the oil sands. It's now an uh, upstream issue globally. Um, you know, but I don't think that necessarily comes off in terms of reduced pressure on the oil sands. I think that pressure continues uh, as, we, as, we, as the world moves more aggressively on transition as a whole. Um, I do, you know, my big question to the oil sands is the, the, you know, the dream of the cash flow engine that was really behind all the investments in the oil sands back in the late two, two, 2000s and 2010, early 2010 kind of period, are now coming to fruition. We're seeing it, you know, uh, this year could be a record high for the industry uh, on the back end of a global pandemic, which is amazing if you think about it. And the question then becomes, what does this industry do with that, that money going forward? Yeah, uh, that'll be an interesting question to watch and hopefully something we can maybe cover together on a future podcast. Sure, this has been fun. All right, well, thanks so much, Kevin. And uh, we, we look forward to coming back to this uh, in coming, uh, coming episodes. Excellent, thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.